to the Ducktown podcast. I'm Andrea. And I'm Emily. And today we'll be talking about Over the Garden Wall. Over the Garden Wall is a 2014 animated TV miniseries produced for Cartoon Network by Patrick McHale, who's known for his work on Adventure Time. Uh, it won an Emmy for Outstanding Animated Program in 2015. It consists of 10 episodes, each are only 11 minutes long, and it stars the voice talents of Elijah Wood, Colin Dean, Christopher Lloyd, Melanie Linsky, Samuel Ramey, and John Cleese, among others. Over the Garden Wall is a story about two brothers, Wirt and Greg, lost in the woods. As they try to find their way through the woods, they're stalked by the dreaded beast, a horrifying and dangerous creature lurking just out of sight. Along the way, they befriend a talking bluebird named Beatrice, who agrees to help them find their way out of the woods by taking them to Adelaide of the Pasture. They meet many of the odd denizens of the forest and help them solve their problems along the way. The story is heavily inspired by Americana, like 18th and 19th century, in art style, music, and subject matter. So, Emily, what did you think of Over the Garden Wall? This was your first time watching it, yeah? Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I kind of went in blind. I didn't want to know too much about it. The art style on the cover is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. It did remind me of Adventure Time, some of the art style. So yeah. glad to know that that's accurate. Um, but it was absolutely wonderful. And I think it was just short enough to kind of binge the whole thing through. Yeah. It was like watching a short movie. Yeah, I think they like released it Like, they showed it, like, all in a row the weekend that they released it. And you can really tell that it's meant to, it's not meant to be watched, like, once a week. No, no, you could really sit down and do it, especially because some of them start off, some of the episodes start off kind of ambiguous, as if you've missed something, only Mm -hmm. to pull you right back in. So it's really a, a strong continuation episode after episode. Yeah, yeah, I have watched it I think every year since it's come out like once a year in fall to get me in the fall mood because it just it has such a beautiful art style and it just is so evocative of the season in a way that not a lot of you know like there's some media that does that but I just think it does it so perfectly. No there's something about it that even if it's not entirely unnerving in the Mm -hmm. sense of kind of getting into September and October Um, There are the color schemes. It makes you feel kind of, it's haunting, even though it's silly. (laughs) It's a very haunting TV series. Yeah. It has a really nice balance of the humor and also the spookiness. Like I'm, I can do spookiness. I can't really do scary that much. And I feel like it hits just the right level of spooky where you're really unnerved in certain episodes, but it brings it back with the jokes. Exactly. Or maybe the episode ends in a way that is a little daunting but the fullness of the episode there's a lot of chaos that's pretty silly yeah yeah I think we're going to try and talk about it a little bit spoiler free at the beginning because this story is short (laughs) but it takes you on a lot of twists and turns but yeah you had some really good uh suggestions about like what we should talk about first so what do you want to talk about first Emily yeah okay so Man, let me think of how to tackle this in a spoiler-free way, because we can always come back to <laughs> yeah, it and if, look at it. In yeah, depth. yeah. Um, I guess a really good way to look at this is the, sto- the story takes place. Um, it starts where 
the two main characters, Wirt and his brother, Mm -hmm. um, who seem to be uh, the ages somewhat up in the air. Yeah, Wirt is in high school. Greg, the little brother, uh, I don't know, maybe little, maybe like seven. Yeah, seven, seven, eight. Definitely very, very silly. He's kind of our comedic relief. Yes, Um, they are going through the woods, and it's this immediate interaction of the woods is another place Mm -hmm. of the woods is a scary place and they're going further and further in something I really wanted to tackle because it's a common theme throughout this is pre-enlightenment and the era the idea of the woods being another supernatural or unnatural place Mm -hmm. I know this sounds silly at first because we think of the forest and we're like nature Mm -hmm. but in pre-enlightenment times uh, the forest was actually seen as one of the most unnatural places to go. Interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting idea. And the reason for this is because what man could cultivate, what man could control, that was what was natural. Oh. Um, whatever was mysterious or hidden or held secrets, these were the things that were seen as unnatural. These are the things that created superstitions, and these are the things that created cautionary tales. So the woods almost act as another realm in the sense of pre-enlightenment terrorization of children. So they'd they'd be scared into submission, basically, to listening to their parents. Oh, that's really interesting. I can see how that really applies to the Pottsfield episode, which I know you really (laughs) wanted to talk about. Because Pottsfield is a place where... You know, they're walking through the woods and they come out and they see this little orderly town. And I think at one point where it's like he's explaining his thought process to the villagers. And he's like, and we saw the town and we thought that's a town filled with normal people. Right. <laughs> but the the joke is that they're all like pumpkin people. Right. Exactly. It's anything but normal. It's fantastic because the town is just in the middle of the woods. So at first you're like, oh, it's outside. Yeah. It's now you know, uh, controlled and you go into it and you realize it's just in the middle yeah. of strangeness. Yeah. Cause like they, they're, you think you've gotten to the edge of the woods and where it's like, we can call someone to come pick us up. We've made it through, <laughs> but you're right. They're just right in the thick of things. Yes, exactly. So that's really, that's a fascinating idea. And then let yeah. me find my other note here because it went with this. I guess the second part of this we can talk about more when we get in depth with the show yeah, because yeah. it definitely springs. So what episodes really stood out to you, Andrea, in the sense of how it created a setting for the show? That's interesting because, you know, you start with the old grist mill and you just don't have any information. I feel like, you know, they're, you establish that they're wandering through the woods and they come across this mill and everything is dark and dim, and you're starting to talk to characters, but it's, compared to the other episodes, it's such a limited perspective. So I feel like, I feel like the second episode, Hard Times at Huskinby, is the first time you really get a a glimpse of what is even going on here. No, I completely agree with you. The episode starts, the first episode starts in the middle of conversation between the two brothers. Yeah. And I think that that is, you know, purposeful ambiguity, um, which is great. I noticed that a lot on, sorry to cut you off. No, you're fine. I noticed that a lot on this rewatch that, um, you know, they're like, 
there starts with like Greg just listing names. And then at the end of this long list, he's like, but I think the very best name for this frog is. (laughs) So you like kind of recontextualize this list of, oh, they're trying to name this frog. And then where it's like, wait a minute, what are we doing out here? And Greg's like, oh, well, we're walking home. And where it's like, oh, no, we're lost. And it gives you so little information, you know, like, what are we doing out here walking home? But like, how would you like, how would you get confused about that and wonder? Right, exactly. The only the only idea they come up with is that they got too far um, frog hunting. Yeah, right. <laughs> For this frog that they're trying their best to name. Whose name continuously changes throughout the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think another uh, significant part of this show is just like the Americana in terms of the imagery, the music, and even some of the plots of episodes that you come across. Like we could we could do an entire podcast episode just trying to list all of the imagery, yes. but like, you know, some of the things that pop out is there's an episode where they're in like a one room schoolhouse and um, there's like some ragtime music and a, a lot of very catchy songs, including potatoes and molasses, which as soon as you hear it, it'll be stuck in your head forever. Oh, potatoes and molasses, if you want some Ask a storm and soft like puppies in socks filled with cream and candy rocks. Oh, potatoes. It's true. Yeah. I've been singing it like the last two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's so catchy. Um, there's another episode where they're on like a big old fashioned riverboat and there's, you know, a big band on the boat. Um, the uh, uh, Pottsfield is a lot like, you know, has a lot of imagery from the early colonies and the Puritans. There's even turkeys there, um, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, even the episode where they're trying to find a clear way out or directions. Um, They stop in like a tavern. Everyone there is representing a stereotypical... um, Like like, an archetype. Yes, exactly, which were very popular for, I'd say, Americana, a lot of them, the way they're dressed, um, the way that they handle things. It's almost running this continuous loop. Yeah, like you have, like, the tavern keeper, the baker, the master and apprentice, and the highwayman. Right. (laughs) And now we're going to uh, start talking about spoilers for the show, because... It's a lot of like the thematic importance is very hard to talk about without spoiling it. So if it sounds at all interesting to you, you should go ahead and watch it before listening to the rest of this episode. Emily, did you want to circle back around to the uh, second part of what you were talking about with like the the natural versus supernatural and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is what I found really interesting because when I first started the show, um, I'd say all the way up until the last two episodes, Mm -hmm. I was really focused on cautionary tales and pre-enlightenment, which is basically just pre-17th century Europe um, with, you know, regards to other cultures that they took interest in. So Basically, before I get into it, cautionary tales were stories told to children in folklore to warn the listener of a danger. Um, in this instance, I see him as the woodsman. He kind of acts oh, yeah. as that 
that character that keeps forewarning. What are you doing here? You need to leave. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. no clear explanation because they've already continued into the forest. Um, There are three essential parts uh, introduced in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. So the first is usually a taboo, a place of danger or a thing of harm, such as the creature and the forest. The second is the narrative fighting the warning. So them going further into the forest and not paying heed to the the beast, basically. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the violator succumbs to an unpleasant and usually grisly fate. So in this case, they almost do, but Mm -hmm. there's a sense of... Right, we, we enter the Enlightenment right at the end, which I think is really fascinating. And oh, the re- so they, they kind of avoid exactly. the typical fate. They're not turned into the, you know tree stumps, yeah. not, which is actually <laughs> huge in cautionary tales, I oh, guess. Wow. I know. So I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really fascinating. It is. But the Enlightenment, right, Europe in the 17th and 18th century with global influences and effects, there's this idea all of a sudden instead of superstitions and warnings of reason versus superstition. Mm -hmm. So this is where Wirt comes in, right? He kind of acts as our idea of reason, even if it's through stubbornness. (laughs) But basically what I see is the wood has then become a place of heightened self, right? This is the sublime. Mm -hmm. So instead of a place of the supernatural, the natural compared to a heightened sense of self through nature, this is where their perspectives come into play. Mm -hmm. And you have to ask yourself, is the forest how it is because that's how it is? Or is it how it is because it's through Wirt's perspective? Because oh. there is one scene that is through Greg's perspective. And it's very ironically like how you would think of the inside of oh. Greg. And you mm-hmm. realize it's used as a trick for him. Yeah. So with that, Andrea, I know that's kind of a lot to impact, but... Yeah. What do you think of the forest? Is it how it appears or is it how it's perceived through the character taking in the story? That's so interesting because then that would kind of imply that Wirt just knows a lot about, you know, like 18th, 19th, early 20th century Americana. Right. But it's interesting because he kind of takes on that pilgrim aesthetic. Yes, yes. Yes, that fits perfectly. I'm just remembering. So he loves poetry and he loves playing the clarinet, which really um, fits into that. But there's this fascinating moment when he is wandering a mansion with Beatrice and he's like, oh, this is so strange in here. And she's like, what? And he's like, oh, well, the architecture here is of the French Rococo style. That doesn't really seem in line with Endicott's Georgian sensibilities. And Beatrice is like, wait a second, who am I talking to you? And then Wirt literally replies, oh, am I not supposed to know that? Right, exactly. It's one of those things where there's these hints of a different time period. Mm-hmm. But he's almost playing out like the first thing, the first line of the um, show in one way, I can't remember word for word, but he's talking about his love interest, Sarah, and how she's whisked away by something burger. Jason Thunderburger. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. And when you're listening to it, you're like, oh my gosh, this maiden got whisked away by this this knight Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. he has nothing on, right? And it sets up this kind of story lens right from the get-go that you're you're watching two maybe farmer boys going yeah. through the woods. 
Yeah, because they're both wearing clothing that's very indicative of, you know, an older time period. Greg's in like overalls, like f- big floofy, like little suspenders. Yeah, that like that end at like the knee and then like long socks. And Wirt is wearing his like pilgrimy gnome type yes. outfit where he's also wearing like kind of suspenders underneath, like a collared shirt and then like a a cloak and like a right. pointed hat. Exactly, exactly. And every time they seem to perceive something a certain way, it usually ends up being odd, but then it bends to that idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm just like, I'm stuck on the idea of like, Wirt, like his perspective influencing it and like just kind of trying to reinterpret what I've watched through that lens. It's strange because we were talking a little bit about um, Greg's Cloud Kingdom. Yes. Right? Everything there is happy and the toys or animals are dancing. It's everything you would expect from Greg. Yeah. And then you realize he makes a deal there with, Mm -hmm. uh, what is she the queen of the Cloud Kingdom? Yes. But that ends up being the beast. Yeah. Well, I feel like I want to dig down and talk about this particular episode because yes. I feel like there's a lot to debate on what has actually happened that would on be screen. Great. I feel like a lot of the time in this show, um, even if you're not entirely sure what's going on at the moment, it like later answers the question. But for some reason, um, this episode, it's babes in the wood. It's the third to last episode. It's, I feel like I rewatch it and I think of a different interpretation of the events every time. So what basically happens is Greg lays down to sleep and he wishes upon a star to find a way out of the woods. And then he's taken through his dreams and it's pretty clearly that it's like inside his head is taken up into cloud city by all of these old like 1930s style cartoons and like the, the style of the animation and the pacing of the story shifts to being much more in line with like these old cartoon style. Um, And they have like a little celebration and like get up to some hijinks. And um, at the end, the queen comes down and he's like, Oh, I wish that we could go home. And the queen is like, well, I'm sorry I can't do that for you because Wirt is feeling too much despair and he's already in the beast's grasp, so I can't take him with you. And then Greg's like, oh, well, I have another wish. And he whispers it in the queen's ear, and we never find out what he wishes for. And she's like, oh, are you sure, Gregory? And then it cuts away to the next scene, and Greg is in the real quote unquote, in the real world, talking to Wirt. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go and figure a way to get us home. Wirt, bye. And then you, <laughs> and you see the beast in the background. And he's like, all right, come now, Gregory. Like, let's go away together, essentially. And it's interesting because the queen also calls Greg Gregory. Yeah. And then all throughout the scene when he's up in the cloud city, it keeps, I think... This is partially a stylistic thing, but they do these like vignettes, not in every scene where they like, you know, just do, it's like a circle 
in which everything's animated and everything else is black around the edge as if someone's looking through like a telescope. And this is like something they just used to do in animation to cut down on like the amount they needed to animate. But it really gives the scene a feeling of being watched too in a very interesting way. And so like the com- some of like the competing ways you can interpret the scene are like, oh, Greg has like, is actually talking to like, a real benevolent person who is trying to help him and he just wishes for to like meet the beast or you can interpret it as a trap that's laid for Greg by the beast and like this is just all an illusion and the beast is really behind the scenes which is how I originally interpreted the scene but yeah it's so hard because we never really find out what he wishes for yeah but super super creepy how it's set up it's really creepy and it's it's so you're like it's so different it's like definitely it's all very greg right right it is very very greg he's yeah. the most optimistic character in the whole thing he dances around and has a teapot on his head it's so true. you can't get better than that yeah what did you think of that scene like how did how did you interpret it yeah it was really difficult especially cuz it was the first time i watched it i probably mm-hmm. should have gone back just because there was so much to unpack but oh, um it's one of those things where it seems so strange that he wished on a star consciously mm-hmm. and then went into the streamscape, right? Mm-hmm. And there everything starts out positively and then gets really, really very serious where yeah. he's able to make a wish. He he saves everyone in the cloud kingdom and the queen of the clouds comes by and offers him the wish. When he wakes up, what I noticed too was exactly the same thing where it, the beast uses the same name. Mm-hmm. And it's the only time I think he's called Gregory in the show yeah i'm not sure if that's literally true but it feels true when i'm watching it that i'm like really stood out yeah Yeah. and so we don't have a clear perspective at least i didn't Mm -hmm. on if it was the beast the whole time but definitely felt like a manipulation in Mm -hmm. circumstance yeah i agree there's so much going on at that point in the story too um because like Wirt is having his descent into despair, into the beast's clutches. We've just lost a friend who Mm -hmm. they felt betrayed by. Yeah, so much betrayal at this point. So when we were watching this, you told me you went through kind of a similar instance of, wait, what year is this? Yes. And then there were certain things that you even pointed out, like Mm -hmm. when he asks for a phone. Yeah. Like, what's a phone? When did you start indicating a possible time period or did not hit you until you literally saw him in his room? It really didn't hit me until I saw him in his room. Cause like, I feel like they keep it deliberately very ambiguous throughout the series. And like, if you're paying attention, there are little like hints that what's taking place isn't taking place in like the 1800s or whatever, the 1900s. Um, well, it could be in the late 1900s, unclear. <laughs> um, but it, I, I kind of brushed off. It's, it comes so under the radar that I kind of brushed it all off until we got to the flashback into what happened, like what caused them to end up in the unknown, which is, um, this is all taking place in their minds right. essentially on Halloween in a year that's at least the eighties, but you know, could, I feel like they kind of leave it open to interpretation that it could be like the 90s or the early 2000s. Yeah, that sounds about right, especially because that would make sense to leave some leeway 
they mentioned something about um, the music tape yeah. he makes. And I think CDs were invented in, or released in like 84. Yeah, something like that. But it's it's unclear because he, he makes a mixtape for the girl he likes, like a literal tape. And she says, I don't have a V, you know, like I don't have a, not a VHS player, but I don't have a cassette player. Right. Um, so it's unclear if she doesn't have a cassette player because this is like, you know, newer technology and she just doesn't own one yet. Or if she doesn't have one because he's being really extra and right. like everyone's listening to CDs, but he made a mixed tape. Word is definitely extra. So that would not shock me just with his <laughs> nightly ways. You he's know. the most dramatic person. <laughs> He really is. That's really fascinating. Out of like going to a land that's magical, he's definitely the most, yeah, emotional mm-hmm. creature there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting to me because I was I was definitely taken aback and confused yeah. when it first pops to the screen of Word on His Bed and he's wearing like just a t-shirt and jeans. Mm-hmm. I was very, very confused because I'm like, wait a second, those are electronics in the background. Yeah. Um, but that definitely, I think, goes into, you know, different episodes, like going back to um, that pumpkin town. Yes. Um, there's an idea when you look at it again, right? It's Halloween. Mm-hmm. He's getting dressed up. He's getting ready to go confront Sarah and, you know, give her his feelings. And yeah. I think it's really interesting that the first episode um, exploring into the woods is the pumpkin town. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this maybe is because if they are drowning, yes. you know, if this is almost like a, a self-purgatory, it would be the closest thing to Halloween that maybe they had last seen, mm-hmm. all the carved pumpkins and kind of the macabre. And it, I thought, you know, it's really fascinating because you think of almost pumpkins lining people's houses mm-hmm. or streetways and they go through this and that's when everything continues on. So I almost saw this as maybe a possible representation of going further into unconsciousness. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. And I feel like it's further support to your theory that like our vision of the unknown right. is seen through Wirt's eyes because he was just experiencing Halloween and so, and he's also a very dramatic person yes. and he has, he's, you know, he's got like teenage angst and depression and all of that. And like that really like lends a sinister character to the woods in this Halloween-ish setting. He's also like, he takes his costume from pieces of a Civil War uniform, like a clearly in an heirloom. And that also kind of falls into like the Americana, like old past imagery. He totally does. I, I forgot about that. It was so fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I have watched this series so many times <laughs> and it's only through that that I've managed to pick up these nuggets. <laughs> hey, but that's really important to notice that. It is. But it's interesting. So one thing that I was really thinking about on this rewatch, you know, relating to Wirt, is that a lot of the story is about like the un like the bearing of the soul and like becoming vulnerable. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the New York Times article um, that says if we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. 
No, but that is absolutely beautiful. It's it's from an article about this guy who sent out an email at work about his goats <laughs> and someone replied all expressing scorn for his goats and he he was like upset about this and like just ruminating about bearing your soul essentially um and he i forget the exact image but i think he was talking about like a hypothetical in which like the idea of like getting to a place where people can like fully love you you have to like first accept like open yourself to like understanding everything that someone feels about you so you have to go through descend like the staircase where like first you have to pass all of like the doors behind which are like all of the negative things people think about you before you can get to the doors behind which everyone has their positive feelings and like you know actually feel love and it's just you know it's just about like how in order to like be accepted you have to be vulnerable first like people can't know and accept you unless they can actually know and accept you you know yeah and I was thinking about that a lot while watching this because I feel like most of the characters have something like that going on even a lot of like the side characters no that's an excellent point you're bringing up every single one has like a a small or a larger trial that they're figuring out whether Mm -hmm. it's through the show or in the episode yeah and yeah that's really really interesting you're right there's almost self-exploration throughout the whole thing yeah because if you think about Wirt, um you know his insecurities and his you know crush on sarah his like poetry writing and clarinet playing his like status as the lover boy like these are all things that he is embarrassed by confronts and comes to terms with over the course of the film and then you have Beatrice the other like one of the other main characters her big secret is her shame for like and being the reason that her family was cursed to be bluebirds and she hasn't even admitted to that her family that the reason they're all bluebirds is because of her and she comes to terms with that over the course even greg has yes. to and greg is like one of those characters who like doesn't change too too much throughout the course of the story but even he you know he has this recurring bit where he has this little painted rock with a silly face on it and he holds it up and he'll say like a completely untrue thing and be like that's a rock fact I think even at one point he's like this isn't true it's a rock fact exactly exactly he's like did you know if you take raisins and you soak them in grape juice they turn into rocks or into grapes that's a rock fact um and even he uh admits at the very end that he stole the rock facts rock from this old old woman um who had him like help around his yard and he's clearly torn up about it. <laughs> he's he 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 thinks he's dying, and his last his dying words are, "You gotta return the rock facts, rock. I'm a stealer." <laughs> well, right, because he's so proud of who his brother is, and I think he wants yeah. his brother to be proud of him too. And so he does. He almost uses the rock for comedic relief, and he's mm-hmm. it's weighing on him. Yes, slowly, a literal rock burden. <laughs> <It's weighing. laughs> yeah, but even a lot of like the side characters. Like, um, I noticed on this one, Endicott, who we haven't even talked about at all, his episode is fascinating. He's afraid that he's crazy. He saw a ghost and he's in love with this ghost that he saw, but he's afraid that he's actually crazy. And um, so he like starts to take 
them to go and like hunt down the truth of the ghost and he gets cold feet at the end um but they convince him to keep going and it's only through that that he can realize oh no his ghost is he wasn't crazy also his ghost is a real person and they're in love now right their houses were just too close together (laughs) (laughs) two big mansions that they slowly connected unknowingly with construction right right but yeah, I like I was thinking a lot about making yourself vulnerable and I think that like makes sense with like thinking your idea of thinking of the unknown as like walking deeper into the unconscious. Absolutely, especially with your bringing up souls. This the mm-hmm. soul searching, anything with representation of souls mm-hmm. such as the lanterns, right? It's holding yeah. old souls. Um, or lost souls. It's fascinating because maybe the woods in the end are a place where you can come out of or get stuck in. So you mm-hmm. either come out a stronger person or you remain there how you are. Yeah. Like the whole the whole source of peril, you mentioned the lantern, is there's this beast. And if you give in to despair, then the beast steals your soul, essentially. Um, and lost souls become these horrifying trees called Adelwood trees. Um, and they need the bark ground up to produce this black Icarus substance, this like oil for the lantern. And the woodsman is doing this because he thinks that his daughter's soul is in the lantern. That's what the beast told him. But we find out by the end that the lantern actually contains the beast's soul. Yeah, there's an idea of macabre with that. Mm -hmm, We have... mm -hmm. We have the idea that the whole forest could possibly be filled with lost people fueling the fear of getting lost. Yes. Symbolically, you know, <laughs> and, and realistically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that there's, there's the danger. Like, I, Wirt and Greg, I think, think of, like, the beast as being a very physical danger. But they, they don't find out till later that it's just, it's a very psychological danger. Because once you give up on the idea of getting through the woods and, like, give up on the idea of, you know, supporting each other and, like, trusting people, that's when the beast or depression, despair finds a way to take root. And then you literally take root and start growing an Adelwood tree. Which, you know, connects back to what you were talking earlier with the Enlightenment and the idea of, like, the cautionary tales where, you know, people actually turn into stumps. Right. Like, clearly that's where they got some of this idea from. Yeah, it's super creepy. I mean, we see witches especially, like, mm-hmm. in regards to this story and other cautionary tales or or different creatures, the idea of turning children primarily into um, items of consumption, mm-hmm. whether it's food or wood or water interesting yeah i know i was surprised that we didn't have a gingerbread house i was waiting for it (laughs) i was i'm like where is it i was thinking though you know like greg makes a little candy trail in the beginning that's kind of like a little bread crumb trail and kind of also evokes the candy house like we have plenty of witches in this though we do but like when i saw the schoolhouse i'm like here it is (laughs) (laughs) i'm ready you know and then the witches ended up being almost more subtle pieces which Mm -hmm. i thought was very fascinating yeah yeah uh because our our one main witch, Adelaide of the Pasture, she turns out to be the evil witch. And later you run into 
what you later learn is her sister. Yes, Auntie um, Whispers. Auntie Whispers, thank you. I couldn't yes. remember. It was so strange I had to write that one down. So. Yeah, which it was really interesting. Um, like we talked about Miyazaki a little bit ago and you can, that one of like the very clear like non-American influences is in Auntie Whispers is very obviously drawn from Miyazaki, both in design and like yes. kind of how she acts and like the fact that there's this, old witch in the woods who's good and like this more accessible witch who's evil who are sisters that's a lot like spirited away very much so no I definitely feel that where you almost because of who they are they're villainized Mm -hmm. until you open up their character a bit yeah like you've got to learn about them yeah and related to them there's quite a lot of uh, this is kind of an obvious statement there's a lot of death imagery in over the garden wall like the forest of the unknown is very evocative of purgatory, both in an implicit and explicit way, because Greg and Wirt are like drowning in the real world, and that's how they find themselves in the unknown. But Adelaide of the Pasture is interesting because, you know, you uh, <laughs> sometimes when things are dying, you know, you put them out to pasture, and in order to get to her, they have to get on to. Uh, they get onto a riverboat, but it's explicitly called a ferry, and they need two cents, two pennies to get there, which is a lot like the price to like in Greek mythology right, to the ride the ferry sticks. to the underworld. Oh, I totally didn't catch that. I love <laughs> that. Dang, I know it's amazing. I am up right, and then the frogs go into hibernation, yes. which is sometimes seen as a momentary death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and throughout the you know you start very solidly in the middle in the middle of uh, fall, or really at the end of fall, I suppose is more accurate. And then by the end of the series, snow is falling, and it's very clearly evoking winter. And that's when, um, like, we're funnily enough in the unknown falls through the ice into the water again and starts to drown even within his <laughs> within drowning, the drowning um basically at the point at which it turns into winter and that's when like the actual peril of their death appears that's honestly insane <laughs> i feel like i'm seeing things through a whole different lens now right that's fantastic because i was a little thrown with the sudden cold. That's yeah. really amazing. I took it as like a standstill, mm-hmm. you know, in s- story plot because he gives up and things freeze. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really. Well, that is. I like, love that. <laughs> right. That is a kind of metaphorical death, you know. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Right. Because the first witch, Adelaide, she's almost ill or at least she claims to be. Yes. Oh, that's really great. Mm-hmm. And you let in the cold night air, and that's what kills, kills her. her. Yeah, which like is just used to be a belief that cold night air could kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we kind of buried the lead with Pottsfield because they're not actually pumpkins; they're actually right. skeletons wearing pumpkins and corn husk arms. And that's a whole bit of the creepiness is because they're like, people don't tend to pass through Pottsfield. And they're like, oh, you're here early. Yes. But what they're talking about is that like, you know, when you die, they like dig up their your skeleton in Pottsfield and put you in some pumpkins. And- it's super cute after mm-hmm. the fact. But when you don't know what's going on, you're like, what's under there? Like yeah. one of the lines that stood out to me is you don't look quite ready yet. Yeah. And I'm like, what is 
What do you mean? <laughs> so it was definitely um, disturbing just because there was a mystery to it. But yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, yeah. And yikes. it's creepy because they've got like carved faces that don't emote, you know, and a lot of like animation, even if something technically wouldn't be able to like emote, you know, like a bird, they'll still like, you know, draw their faces making expressions, but they do not do that with the pumpkins. No, no, they're stuck in one position, which led me to believe like something has to be under them. But mm-hmm. I didn't know, you know, is it a spirit? Is yeah. It- is it a demon? Right. But no, it was just human skeletons. Right. <laughs> and they're really quite pleasant people. They were very cute. It was like they were throwing a whole party. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of wonder, like, are these people, if you think of the unknown as like a kind of purgatory, I'm like, are these people who just are forever lost or are we not really meant to like think about them that literally? Yeah, because when I dug into it, the only indication I had of a possibility is there's Mm -hmm. a part where they're all doing a maypole, which is a part of paganistic Mm -hmm. ritual sometimes for for different celebrations. And it made me wonder, like, does this go back into, like, the thin veil of Halloween and their perception? Mm -hmm. Or is it just kind of a more welcoming, they're closer to the edge of the you know, the forest and it gets creepier as you go in. Oh, I didn't even really think about it in the context of All Souls Day, but that makes total sense. And also like thinking about their crops in terms of like an offering for the dead type thing. Yeah, and there's the kitty who's, yeah, the black cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the black cat. And then we just got the turkeys and they're, I think they're more for just evoking Thanksgiving vibes. Yeah, they're kind of Almost you think they're going to be more humanistic than Mm -hmm. anything and they're just there. Yeah. The animals are so interesting in this because we have Beatrice, who's a human turned into a bluebird and she can speak. And then you have the schoolhouse animals who are clearly intelligent, but act really like slow and they don't ever speak. And then you have like the frogs who are clearly have their own little frog society, but they just talk in frog noises so they can understand each other, but you can't understand them. Yeah, you're totally right. There's almost an appreciation for music Mm -hmm. from the animals, but only speech when it comes to animals turned from a human. Yeah. And then there's like that fish fisherman who doesn't talk, but he's clearly a person. Right. The, the turkeys are kind of beasts of burden and they like, you know, clearly make fun of work yes. at some point, but they never speak. But there was another animal that spoke. I mean, the Cloud City animals speak. Oh, Fred the horse. Oh, Fred the right. horse is the, like one of the only other like animals that actually talks, talks. Yeah, I guess you're right. I almost right. And then the frog can sing. Yes. <laughs> quite beautifully, beautifully. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah you're right that maybe they have the ability to speak but they don't feel a need for it yeah I'm not sure yeah yeah that's something I, I want to think about more when I rewatch it but you're right that the animals are really music lovers like the music in this I mean, I feel like we could do an entire podcast on the music in this. It's just, you know, you've got the beautiful like main themes and then you have a lot of, I think most of the music ends up being diegetic, like actually experienced by the characters and understood as being music rather than, you know, just like a background soundtrack, which is really interesting. And it covers like all 
all sorts of like it's all very like Americana based. You know, you got your like ragtime music. You've got this beautiful piano medley sung by our <laughs> our main frog companion. You later find out who has an absolutely beautiful voice. Um, and lots of other music happens along the way too. Right. Like the, the animal children at the school raising money for a fundraiser by playing their instruments. Yeah. They have a little band concert. Yeah. It's very interactive. Otherwise there isn't really background noise. Yeah. Yeah. And even in like the, the episode with Auntie Whispers, the ringing of the bell, Mm -hmm. um, Lorna and Wirt sing a little <laughs> duet that's just so precious and the uh in the inn everyone has their own little song like all oh, of the yes. archetypes and they <laughs> force they him. force Wirt to sing a song after they've just decided that he's the pilgrim and they actually had Elijah Wood um improvise the song and it's very funny it's not good no it's not <laughs> But he does like being called the Pilgrim, yeah, which is great. Yeah, they call him the lover at first, and he does not like that because that, you know, picks at his insecurities. But then he's like the Pilgrim, and he's very enchanted with the idea that he's on, like, the sacred quest. Yeah, it's interesting because he starts out in the tavern. They're like, who are you? Like, what's your what's your job? And he's like, oh, I don't really like labels. But clearly he's <laughs> he's okay with labels if they <laughs> if he thinks they're cool enough and, exactly you know there's a lot of role playing in this you know a lot of people pretending to be something they're not yeah you're right because things don't really get exposed unless they need to even uh the schoolhouse teacher what mm-hmm. is her name uh miss langtree yes okay she has a whole thing where she she feels like her love uh, has left her yeah, behind. Jimmy Brown, that yes. no good Jimmy Brown. We have a whole song about how he's broken her heart. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole time he has been trying to get to her, he's actually done some good, but he's stuck in a gorilla costume. Yes, tragically. Right. <laughs> so you're right. There's almost this, uh, I don't know, this disguise everyone's taken on, yes. whether for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to bring up with you, Andrea, is I've done a lot of thinking of what the garden wall is. Yeah. Like, what is the garden wall? Do you have any uh, ideas that you've come up with? Yeah, um, that's something like what the unknown is and what the garden wall is, is something that I've thought about a lot. And I don't have an exact answer. It's interesting, both of them. Um, have their own songs so I like printed off the lyrics and I was looking at them but the the thing that I always come back to with the garden wall is in the flashback um, they're in the cemetery and they literally climb a big stone wall and through falling down that and then over these train tracks and then they try to escape this train and they fall into the water um, so I, I think the the garden wall is like very metaphorically a threshold, but like the fact that it's the garden wall is interesting. Right. Yeah. No, I definitely, exactly. Same exact thing. Thought of the wall, right? Because it's a very evident scene that they have to mm-hmm. climb this. Um, and it's fascinating. Definitely. One of the things I was thinking of in relations to this um, is, you know, on Halloween, it was believed that the veil was at its thinnest, yes. right? Between us 
and the other place. And that's why we would dress up in costumes so that spirits would get confused with who was a spirit and who was a human because then you would be at danger of um, being taken to the other place once the the veil uh, lifted again. And one thing I kind of was thinking about, right, is there's a veil between here and there, right? There's this looking glass theory. Mm -hmm. And when they tumble over the wall and literally plunge into the water. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder how they plunged into this kind of reflection, you know, reflection yeah. of a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if what you thought kind of about that idea. I know it's kind of, you know, it's far-fetched. No, but it makes perfect sense. It's very awesome. like, it's very Alice in Wonderland uh, through the looking glass. <laughs> you know, water is like definitely like literally reflecting like that makes that's that makes perfect sense to oh, me. Oh, awesome! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but that was probably the closest thing I could come up with. The garden wall. Um, I'm sure there are many other ways to look at it, but that was the most physical. Yeah, and it's interesting the over the garden wall song. So that's the song that the frog sings on the barge. The frog, their frog companion, who they've never who's never spoken up to this point is suddenly shown to have a musical career. Uh, Well, a musical talent that he's offered, he's offered (laughs) and they like offer to sign him on, but he, he eventually rejects it to go on with the boys, but it's a very metaphorical song. A single soul sets his voice singing content to be slightly forlorn. And mountains over the blackened ravines. Then softly it falls by a house near a stream and over the garden wall to the They're like a single soul sets his voice singing, content to be slightly forlorn. And then it talks about how like two voices now they're singing and it like goes on. And then it says, then softly it falls by a house near a stream and over the garden wall to thee. And it just, it very much feels in that instance that the to thee is like you, the viewer. Like this is about the story, like speaking to your soul and like, through like the creators this is them singing to you in a very beautiful way no I absolutely agree that's definitely how I took it in Mm -hmm. the sense of a story being created and then carried on and and given yeah yeah and it also like it makes me think about you know I used to take my dog on walks a lot in the evening because she would bark at other dogs and people and bicycles and everything so if you go when it's dark out there's a fewer people and b she can't see as far away (laughs) so so it's really it was really great to trick her but like you know walking along you would catch snippets of like you know oh this person's like grilling and oh this person's listening to this music or oh they're having a party and like I really this song gives me that kind of that slightly like sad but in a good way feeling of like hearing someone else have a good time over there no that 
I love that, Andrea. And I definitely feel that because they use the song kind of to close the series mm-hmm. as well. And it's showing everyone having a very wonderful ending, actually. Yeah. Um, Beatrice has returned to her family. They mm-hmm. are now human again. Um, Wirt and his brother, Greg, have kind of found a common ground of understanding. Things look good with Sarah. Mm-hmm. The woodsman is happy. He has yeah. his daughter. Um, gosh, what the school teacher is with her, with, Mr. Brown. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy Brown. They're at the circus even. Yes, everything ends fantastically, but there's almost a moment of silence before the last line of the the song. Mm -hmm. And I saw it as an alternate ending to saying the end. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what will you do with this story now? Okay, it's something... I thought was I was thinking a lot about character arcs on this rewatch because I feel like Wurtz is pretty obvious and you know Greg's is there to like a lesser extent but uh, something what did you think of their like relationship as brothers? Yeah, at first the only reason I think I saw them as brothers and not mm-hmm. as friends, other than the age difference, is how the episode the first episode starts out because there's this kind of you know the way Greg looks at Wirt Mm -hmm. there's hearts coming out of his eyes Mm -hmm. but other than that Wirt seems very indifferent he's kind of stuck in his own Mm storyline and it's not until Cloud Kingdom almost that we really see emotion towards the idea of others getting hurt um, Mm -hmm. that we see him have a bigger development with Greg yeah. Well, like in the in the first few episodes, Greg wanders off so many times and other characters oh, yes. will just be like, where's your brother? And like there's like screaming happening off screen <laughs> and we're just like shrugs. He's, He's like, somewhere. I don't know. He wandered off, I guess. Well, and he uses Greg to almost blame him for getting lost oh, um, all the time. Whenever there's an issue, he's blaming his brother. And the irony of it is that Greg is working so hard in a way, I think, to impress word mm-hmm. that he is doing everything he can to try and make situations better, whether yeah. it's through singing, mm-hmm. the really cute names he comes up with his, for his frog. Yeah. Um, he always sees the bright side of things, which actually I think helps them in the, a lot of the situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he doesn't almost view him as a brother, I think, at first. He really doesn't. In the, <laughs> in the tavern, you know, he's like literally says you know like my mom had greg with my stepdad like he doesn't describe him as his brother he's like oh this is my like stepdad's kid yes, even though other than. they are like half brothers and they were raised to like you know he's been with greg his whole life i'm so glad you brought that up that moment actually really did stick out to me um it seems very 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 brutal the way Mm -hmm. that he says it almost like go away i didn't even ask you to be here in the first place yeah and like you know you can tell that this is just we're expressing his like frustrations with his mom remarrying and probably you know his his presumably maybe his dad leaving like all of this other strife but like he sees greg as the not instead of like as something good that's like come from all of these changes he sees him as like the physical embodiment of Wirt's own suffering yeah yeah absolutely yeah and it's it's interesting you can see this 
play out with like the frog actually forming like a very beautiful like metaphor for their relationship in the very first episode you know the very first thing we hear is greg listing names for this frog and the the woodsman in that episode right at the end he like gives them a the task like oh you know you guys need to get out of the woods and then he also says you need to give a name to that frog (laughs) like this is like an actual charge um and like all throughout this series you know (laughs) greg is comedically suggesting names for the frog and calling him something different in every scene and then in the flashback we find out you know greg is hanging out with wirt and he's like you promised we'd go frog hunting and Obviously, Wirt was just said this just to make Greg leave him alone and was never intend like intending to go on it. And, you know, Wirt drags Greg through all of his own drama and solving his own problems. And then Greg finds a frog while they're doing this. And he's like, you tricked me. This was a frog hunt the whole time. And he's oh. so, so painfully to us happy about this <laughs> when we know that Wirt was doing no such thing but greg is just sees Wirt and only thinks the best of him and this is like something that he wanted to do together as brothers and you know Wirt was only putting half of his effort into it and then in the very one of the very last scenes you know um greg is like oh yeah and this is our frog we don't have a name for it yet and then where it is like, no, this is our frog, Jason Funderburger. And that's the name that they end up going with, which is so funny. But it was it was also like a beautiful moment because it was him finally like yes. fully accepting Greg and like his r- responsibility as his brother and like loving him. Yeah, no, absolutely. The frog was almost like a forced situation between them to make make amends between each other which greg was very unaware of yeah but yeah it's like a truce Mm -hmm. having him name it especially after his rival for sarah yeah (laughs) was a really beautiful truth because i think he finally feels like maybe greg can understand him and it's not Mm -hmm. as hard as it has to be yeah yeah because like you know greg isn't always right craig doesn't always do the best thing but like wirt finally like stops shutting down all of greg's ideas like towards the end and it's it's his when he's when Wirt has become an Adelwood tree it's his realizing that Greg has gone off and Greg is lost and it's all his fault and his accepting like his his love for Greg and his fear for Greg and his acceptance of his responsibility as Greg's brother is what like frees him from being the tree and frees him from the despair and I'm like tearing up man no it is it's been <laughs> so <fantastic>. emotional <laughs> he had to come to terms on it on his own you know no one was going to be able to tell him Beatrice tried calling him out Mm -hmm. uh, for his behavior Uh, that tavern tried kind of creating an idea or a link between uh, what's important to him and it really took him realizing that he was going to lose the one thing kind of pulling him through his brother Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. to admit fault okay the last couple things that I have for us to talk about, we don't have to. I suppose I just, I'll, I'll list them. And then if you have <laughs> thoughts about them, yeah. you can uh, <laughs> chime in. Um, one of them is like, I don't know if you had a chance to play t- pay attention to the black turtles. This might be a, a 
maybe you didn't have a chance to think about them, but like, you know, they show up in the Auntie Whispers episode. They're what the dog swallows at the beginning. And then also in the schoolhouse episode when they're playing the the little raccoon guy finds one of the turtles and they throw it back into the water. Yeah. Did you have any like thoughts about like the black turtles as a symbol? There were only two things I could come up with and Mm -hmm. I'm really, I was really trying to figure it out. I think I would have had a stronger sense if that we would have seen them closer to the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the only two things I could come up with is the first representing maybe like um, the possible lurking of the beast. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. then we don't really see that. It doesn't quite, you know. Yeah, it doesn't match work. up with all of the beast appearances. Right. Because he's coughed out by what we think is the beast at mm-hmm. the beginning. And it ends up being, I think, just a. It ends up being Beatrice's dog. Right. It's just <laughs> a little dog. Yeah. Um, but another thing that I came up with is maybe they're more symbolic to the idea of what is floating in the pond with them when they're submerged at the beginning. That's interesting. Um, And I'd like to watch again just to see if we can see any of them near the shore or in the water Mm -hmm. uh, because I saw maybe this is a possibility of something linking them towards consciousness because they're very randomly placed, but they seem foreboding. And they're fully black. Yes. That's the other thing. Hmm. Because the only thing I was thinking of, and I'm not convinced of this idea, (laughs) is that they kind of represent, like, sin and temptation. I could see that. Especially in the Auntie Whispers episode, because, like, you know, they, they, like, hide in the turtle basket. uh, And, like, Lorna is not supposed to have them there because she's possessed by a wicked spirit. Um, and she has them and they kind of become like a symbol of like her lies that like lead to their almost really destruction. Is that the last episode that we see the turtles in? That I noticed. That would be really interesting because one thing, if that is the last time we see them, the image of the bell mm-hmm. in that episode. So bells actually symbolize beginnings and endings, a command or a warning and a call to order. So Hmm. it would be fascinating if it was like a higher, because it's their last interaction with the witch. It'd be interesting if that was kind of the end of a journey for them with Mm -hmm. possible, you know, direction. Mm -hmm. But I'm not quite sure just because they're so prominent and yet just sporadic enough. Yeah. um, I don't know if they decided just to not place them in anymore. I'm not sure. That is interesting though. Like (laughs) thinking of the bell as like, order and the turtles as chaos or like the bell is like you know the 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 christian values and like the turtles is unnatural (laughs) sin unnatural sinful turtles yeah well i thought that episode like that episode made me want to like know more about the puritans because i saw a very clear parallel being drawn where like auntie whispers is literally filling um Lorna's time with chores to keep the devil away which is something that I thought was a very Puritan idea yeah it's really interesting because she's villainous Mm -hmm. and then you realize wait she's doing this for a very good purpose yeah um and then you think wait (laughs) was there another (laughs) like way to do this yeah yeah and then we yeah yeah, exactly we find out there's probably a smarter way to deal with the spirit yeah yeah Belle is good in the end, but you know, things happen as we saw and, uh, there, there are opportunities. <laughs> so. Exactly. 
Yeah, I did think it was beautiful, though, at the end when Lorna is cured that she doesn't go off with Wirt. She stays yeah. with Auntie Whispers and they just have a beautiful relationship and live no, together in the sweet. woods. it's sweet. It's almost like Wirt was being used mm-hmm. to help her escape or defeat her, Yeah, which is super, super creepy. <laughs> um, but yeah, she does. She ends up having a very wholesome relationship with her aunt. So yeah, it felt a little bit like a deconstruction of like the of like a, a traditional princess story. Yeah, yeah, just very short one. Yeah, because they're definitely flirting from the get go, and you think she's going to be an additional character on their mm-hmm. journey. Um, yeah. but that's that's squashed pretty fast. Yeah, and it comes right on the heels of uh, Beatrice's betrayal, or rather. Wirt finding out that Beatrice originally only befriended them to bring them into enslavement at Adelaide of the past year, which she like has a turn of heart, but you know, a little too late and gets caught and they like run away. Um, And then you have this other female character who's also, you know, around Wirt's age and she's also not what she appears to be. So it's also another like reinforcement of like the, the betrayal yeah, definitely. He is so hyper focused on the idea that he is being lied to by mm-hmm. possible romantic interests. Yeah. Which is fascinating because then we meet Sarah and she's very, very evidently interested in him. Yeah. So And not at all like completely is like, We're let's spend more time together. Oh, Jason Funderberger, you're like stop putting your hand on my knee. Word, are you gonna be here? And he just <laughs> it goes right over his head. Yeah, I really hope you come to the party later. He goes, yeah, I know you don't want me there, basically. Yeah. (laughs) We've all been there, though. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I I feel like... (laughs) I'm happy. Yeah. I could, like I said, I Mm -hmm. could keep going. I was so happy you brought up Auntie Whispered, though, because that episode is actually really, really more cautionary tale than any of them right but we kind of abandon it mm-hmm. to go forward it's very so. self-contained yes. like it very much it's and it's also one of the ones that just to my mind has like the most like non-americana influence which might not be strictly true it just must be might be because i'm familiar with miyazaki films but oh no the first thing i thought of was spirited away yeah like, yeah absolutely I mean, a lot of them feel very different from each other in really interesting way, but just from where it's placed at in the narrative, like it marks uh, Wirt's like true descent into his depression. And so it just, it feels so strange because a lot of the other self-contained ones, like the one with Endicott and like the school one, they kind of appear in the middle. Right. It's adding to the story in the sense of their journey, Mm -hmm. but it also flows. Mm -hmm. Um, They feel connected. And this one almost felt, you're right, there's a lack of Americana and there's there's kind of more of a a darkness to it. Mm -hmm. Even the color scheme is completely different from the rest of the show. Yeah. It's very blue and dim. Yeah. A lot like Old Grist Mill, actually. It actually has a lot in common with Old Grist Mill. True. Maybe like the containment of secrets, right? Because his house is containing an idea, which I was waiting to learn when we see the breakdown of the logs. But um, yeah, it's like there's more going on than... And the mill literally like breaks down and breaks open. That's so interesting. Exposing truth. 
Yeah. But like not to them really. No. Like they get all of the wrong ideas. Yes. And I don't blame them. It's no. very, very um, foreboding. Well, the woodsman is just <laughs> so allergic to like giving a true statement that is not, doesn't sound like a vague foreboding I'm evil. Well, and they kind of mess up too because they're like, what's that noise? It's probably an axe-wielding serial killer. And mm-hmm. then you see a man with an axe cutting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cutting trees. So, you know, he doesn't have the best introduction for perception probably. No. <laughs> But yeah, which it makes sense from like what you were bringing up with, like in terms of archetypes and like the warning that doesn't get heated and stuff. Well, Emily, I think we've come to the (laughs) a natural end point to our conversation if we don't want to get people coming back here to drag us out of the studio. Start singing. um potatoes and molasses oh man yeah Yeah. well thank you for talking with me today yeah thank you this was fantastic yeah we hope you all go and watch over to the garden wall and enjoy it this fall and now for a few recommendations two books that i've recently finished that i think are absolutely fantastic especially when getting ready for spooky season here the first is uh albert camus uh the stranger or the strange uh, really fantastic kind of odd book um another one that i think is really fantastic i i absolutely recommend is susan hill's the woman in black mm-hmm. a very very creepy story about a kind of haunted town that's dealing with issues Ooh, yeah what, kind, what <laughs> i know what you're like issues Ooh. um so basically what's going on is there's a mysterious woman in black and whenever you see her something bad happens primarily to the children of the town and so when a man comes in to take over the accounting of the house that the woman resided in that they think they're seeing um more and more children are falling to strange illnesses and basically chaotic happenstance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is very spooky. Very, very spooky. <laughs> yeah, and I think when this, I, your episode about The Stranger has already come out for this podcast. Yeah. So I suppose if people want to know what you think about that, they should go and definitely, to that. definitely check it out. Yeah, I'm excited to check it out. Yay. <laughs> I haven't read The Stranger yet, though. I'm Everybody else on staff has like read it or is in the process of trying to read it. And I was like, oh, I should I should get on that. The nice thing about it is like the audiobook is three hours long. So it's a oh, very, wow. very fast read. It's just a lot to unpack. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've heard. Nice. I'm a, I just finished, actually read entirely on my lunch break, uh, Garlic and the Witch by Brie Paulson, which is a juvenile graphic novel, and it's a sequel to Garlic and the Vampire. And it's just, it's a very cute art style. Um, it's uh, reminds me a little bit of Over the Garden Wall, just in terms of like it's got fall feels and is, it's not that, it's not really spooky really, but like it has a cute art style and the expressions that the artist does for all of the characters are just such a joy. Like that really had me like paging through. So I just finished that and it's very cute. It's um, definitely cute. Even if it's not spooky though, there's su- uh, supernatural elements. Yeah. And, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of a little bit of peril, but it's like light peril. It's a nice little light read. Um, and then I also have been listening to a lot of the podcast SciShow Tangents, which is fun and informative podcast. They do like a they take whatever topic and um they just talk about they just they try to find the most interesting and funniest facts about the topic and all of them work at um the company, I think it's Complexly, that does like all of like the SciShow and Crash Course and all sorts of like informational YouTube stuff, but it's just really fun. And they had a episode about coral reefs that just came out that was it was really interesting. There were some really interesting facts about coral reefs in there. What was your favorite one? Oh, good question. I think that like they found a species of coral that has a kind of social structure of um what you call it of like ants and stuff like they have like a queen coral animal that's the only one that can like lay the eggs and then you know the workers are a mix of male and female and the drones are all male that's really cool actually I had no idea about any of that yeah it's a very recent finding and it's like the first ocean animal they found that has that kind of like hive structure I just I thought that was really cool Okay, and if anything, <laughs> Take two. beef it. Beef it. Immediate beef it. <laughs>